The teaching text for today is Exodus 5:22 um, to 6, 9. Moses, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you, have you brought trouble on his people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his, on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I, what I do to Pharaoh. Because of his, by my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his, out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the, my name the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. But by my name the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the, the land of Canaan, where they, re, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands, with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. Amen. Josiah, aren't you glad I gave you a short verse to read? That was great, buddy. Thank you. Well, we've been taking on some pretty big topics lately. Last, last week was a, a pretty big one, elicited a kind of strong response. And we're talking about God versus the empire, or, or uh, empire versus God. And um, today I'm going to do a rebuttal of that sermon called The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> just kidding. I'm going to let that one stand. But you know, it has been just a, it's been a hard season in the world. Many people are just feeling uh, busy and tired. It's also wrapping up a school year, wrapping up kind of an energy cycle. And today my message is going to be an encouraging one. I was listening to 2 Timothy 4 last night. There's an app called Dwell, which is really good. It reads scripture to you in different voices with different background music. And I was listening to Dwell last night as I was doing the dishes and heard in 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul said to Timothy, uh, preach the word, be prepared in and out of season, uh, correct, rebuke, and encourage. And uh, encouragement is what we're going to offer today. Then a lot of challenge. Today we're just going to remind you of things that you already know to be true. And many of us don't need more information. Some of us have way too much information. What we need is to be reminded of the things that we've, we know but we've forgotten. So that's what we're going to do today. So if you've been around for a bit, you'll recall that as we transitioned from Genesis to Exodus a few weeks ago, we remember how God has begun this rescue operation of his people enslaved in Egypt. And God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that, that holy moment that elicited a response of reverence and love. And God instructs Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt, I'm sending you back to Pharaoh, and there, uh, on my behalf, you're going to contend for the freedom of my people. And in our study last week, Moses makes that initial ask of Pharaoh to release the people to go out for a long weekend to worship God in the wilderness. But the response from Pharaoh is a very confident no. 
And not only is it a confident no, to add insult to injury, the Pharaoh says, I'm going to maintain the requirement that you produce this many bricks, but I'm going to eliminate the supply. You've got to figure it out uh, for yourself. When the Israelite foremen learn what happened as a result of Moses' conversation with Pharaoh, they're just incensed against Moses. They're like, thanks a lot, Moses. Look what happened to us because of you. And Moses, in the text that we're just reading, goes back to God, and he says, thanks a lot, God. Look at what's happening to me because of you. Moses finds himself in a very lonely and awkward position. He's in a, he's in a triangulated position. Being caught in a triangle is like the definition of st- stress. Because here's God's people, uh, here's uh, God, and here's Moses stuck in the middle contending for each to the other. Apart from God intervening in a, in a visible, tangible way, Moses is up a creek without a paddle. He's alienated himself from his people, and he's got himself a target on his back from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And Moses finds himself in a position where he is banking on God's faithfulness. And that's going to be the theme of my brief reflections today, banking on God's faithfulness. If God doesn't do something, Moses is in trouble. A couple years ago, uh, one of my favorite group of songwriters, Don and Lori Chaffer, uh, some of you may know them as the name Waterdeep, the band Waterdeep, um, put, put together a musical about the Holy Family, and it's called The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby. And in Advent or Christmas time this year, you should listen to it because it's really, really good. It's a creative take on the relational dynamics between Mary and Joseph and all of the things they might have been feeling. Mary's cousin Elizabeth comes into the mix and the complicated emotions and questions surrounding like Jesus' birth into the world. And in a really great song entitled, Joseph's Never Gonna Believe Me, um, they have, Donna and Lori have Mary singing these words. And Mary says, I know I told God I'd do whatever he needed. I know that once he starts a thing, he's going to complete it. I know that if you live the life of God's chosen servant, sure, you get a faith that's alive and fervent, but no one ever wants a prophet around. They always chase them all to the edge of the town. Oh, the heroes of the faith, they're always so well known, but they also almost always wind up totally alone. And then Mary goes on to say, It feels like deliverance is going to be personally expensive, which I feel like is a really good line. So Elizabeth, forgive me if I'm just a little apprehensive. Moses and Mary are obviously these great heroes of the faith. But they're heroes of the faith now, in retrospect, getting to look back on the whole narrative arc of their stories. But at the beginning, in the middle of their stories, they're like persona non grata. They're they're scandalous. They're, They're folks that you don't really want to associate with. Moses is a troublemaker who's making life way worse for all of his people. And Mary appears to be a woman of ill repute. Joseph is strategizing about how to divorce her quietly at the beginning of the nativity, like the beginning of the birth narratives. But in each case, they're in this unpopular position because they're doing the stuff that God told them to do. They're saying the stuff that God told them to say. And even so, obeying God, it does not boost their social standing. It actually makes things more socially difficult for them. Which leads to what may be for us a key insight. That being misunderstood is part of the personally expensive nature of being a person who steps out in faith, who acts in faith. 
being misunderstood as part of the personally expensive nature of being a person who's trying to obey in the way of Jesus. Uh, in reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, uh, Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln, I was struck by how differently Lincoln's contemporaries spoke about him from how we speak about him now. Or how, how unfairly now in the view of history, many newspapers covered Lincoln compared to how we talk about him with such reverence now. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was the famous suffragette, uh, described Lincoln as dishonest Abe and vowed to leave the country for the island of Fiji if he were re-elected president in 1866. A fellow Republican, another elected official, called Lincoln timid, vacillating, and inefficient, and, quote, not equal to the occasion of the presidency. Another Republican, person in his party, the party of the president, said he lacked practical talent for the important place. In describing the Gettysburg Address, one of the most historically weighty and significant speeches of all time, a reporter for the London Times wrote, anything more dull wouldn't be easy to produce. Don't believe your own press, at the time at least. But history would obviously ultimately vindicate Lincoln, and it's the people who critiqued him in this way who would prove to be out of touch with reality. Those who act with this kind of courage or those who step out in faith must embrace the reality that your intentions and actions may not be understood by other people. And stepping out in faith doesn't mean you do something so heroic as, you know, like try to end the Civil War or, you know, raise the dead or heal the sick or part the Red Sea. Uh, you know, like stepping out in faith can mean at the most basic level just trying to obey the teachings of Jesus in your own small way doesn't necessarily mean you're praying to heal strangers, but you may be trying to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It may be uh, like resisting having the last word in a conversation with a colleague or a coworker. It may mean trying to obey the Sermon on the Mount by turning your other cheek and like resisting having the last word. It might mean just not affirming things that God doesn't affirm. It might be beginning to adjust your schedule to match your priorities as a follower of Jesus. It might mean changing your media consumption. It might mean using a different kind of a standard of ethics in your professional life. Surprisingly, the resistance to these kind of small changes often comes from unexpected sources, not from our enemies out there, but from some of the people who are closest to us, who have known the social script of how we behave and how they relate to us. But when we begin stepping out in faith and obeying the teachings of Jesus, they find they don't know quite how to relate to you the same way, and so they resist or they question or they ridicule. Uh, all of this, stepping out of faith, is just anything you do as a consequence of the belief that the Jesus way is better invites being misunderstood. You know, sometimes I think it would be way easier, the whole Christian life, if Jesus just came back physically and did what he did 2,000 years ago. Like it would be, like we would definitely not have a space, like we would have a huge space issue in the church if Jesus came back and just did that stuff. Because we think Jesus would perfectly explain himself, he would do miracles, everyone would believe, everyone would understand. And yet as we read the Gospels, we know that wasn't true even in his own incarnation. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. Jesus, who cast demons out of people and raised the dead and healed the sick, like, was accused of being demon-possessed himself. And Jesus appeared to demonstrate no urgency to correct the, the storyline about him. He demonstrated limited urgency to silence those who maligned him. He let his life speak for 
itself. And yet, don't we all want to be understood? Don't we all want to be respected and people get our motivation and we get all the credit for all the hard work that we're doing on the inside? But I think that's something that we need to die to. The desire to control our narrative. It represents our our ego manifesting itself. We have to release that desire for control, surrender our fragile ego to the Lord. You know the story Jesus tells about when you're invited to a banquet, banquet, don't take the seat of honor. It says take the, like the lesser seats and then maybe you'll be invited up. And similarly, like uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up himself in due time. Don't work so hard to elevate yourself or write the narrative. Just do your thing faithfully and God will write it for you. He'll lift you up in due time. And as you wait, Peter says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The process is going to be difficult. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, if we take it as a given that you're going to be misunderstood and trying to follow in the way of Jesus, like being misunderstood by other people is one thing. But an equally costly consequence of trying to obey God's word is not understanding yourself how the whole story is going to play out. It's like you're acting in faith and maybe presenting this image of confidence to other people, but you're internally thinking, I really hope this doesn't blow up in my face because I've put myself out there. The psalmist prayed it numerous times, pleading with God to come through on his promises. Psalm 25 two, I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Again in the same psalm, Psalm 25.20. Guard my life and rescue me. Don't let me be put to shame. Psalm 31.1. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Don't let me be put to shame. Psalm 69.6. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. It's the prayer of a leader who knows like things are riding on what happens. Psalm 119.31. Um, I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Don't let me be put to shame. It's the candid prayer of a person who's trying, who's putting in the work and hope it doesn't, hoping it doesn't blow up in their face. It's someone who has already leapt from the platform and they're holding on to the trapeze and they're released and they're like, oh, please, someone catch me. Please, someone catch me. And, and they don't want to be smashed like a bug in front of an amused audience. These are the prayers of one who is banking on God's faithfulness. Apart from God's intervention, I'm up a creek without a paddle. Now, you'll notice that in the text, Moses takes the the concerns that he has uh, to God. Like, God, like I told Pharaoh, and he said no, and now everybody's angry with me. Like, how are you going to rectify the situation? Even Moses doesn't know how things are going to shake out. So he's like, God, what do you want me to say next? Well, you can imagine Moses' frustration when he goes to God and God says, here's what I want you to tell him. And Moses is like, good, this is going to make things better. And he delivers the message to the people and the people are unable to listen because of their frustration. And Moses is like, well, what do you want me to tell you? I'm right there too. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know how things are going to shake out. I don't know where this story is leading. I only know what I've been told. I only know what I've seen and what I've experienced. I'm just acting on what he's told me so far. When Emily and I uh, were were newlyweds, we were uh, married in June, and then in in, uh, September we moved to Honduras. And I had just graduated college, 
And we'd been on a mission trip uh, to Honduras with Life Church and college and had a meaningful experience and felt the sense of call to go. And to give you a sense of like my own growth over the last however many years, when we got married, I'd been coming out of a season of just darkness and depression that lasted probably four or five years and was feeling very unconfident, did not have a clear sense of what God was calling me to do. And uh, when we decided to go as missionaries, Emily said, you know, we should go back to my home church Asbury and talk to folks there and maybe maybe folks will help us fundraise and things like that. So we started attending Asbury my first time in a Methodist church and we go, we're arranged to go and talk to this one Sunday school class about our plan to move to Honduras and hopefully folks are going to partner with us. And I was so freaked out about the possibility of going to talk to 20 or 30 people in this Sunday school class that I was vomiting that morning and Emily did it by herself. She did a great job because I think they all sponsored us. Thank you. What's cool is 10 years later, a bunch of those people branched out to help us start our church. Um, but we, we moved to Honduras, and, you know, for us, it felt like this grand adventurous thing. We, we lived in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, which is the city geographically is like a bowl. The mountains form like a bowl on the outer rim, and we lived in the, the middle of the city in a valley. And in the mornings, we'd hop in our green forerunner, and we would drive up into the mountains, which was an adventure in itself, like driving in a video game, and I'm waving and honking, and cars are coming everywhere, and we never had an accident. In the rainy season, we'd go up into the mountains and the roads would literally wash away. And so it was interesting to get up there and we feel like we're these pioneers and doing courageous things. And, but, but our bosses, uh, Ron and Shelley, they were in their 60s when 10 years earlier they had moved to Honduras. Uh, Hurricane Mitch had sent all these poor farmers living out in the flatlands up into the mountains with no schools, no running water, no electricity, living in huts put together with tin roofs and pallets. And they'd just gone up on their own and started this, this ministry. And Ron and Shelley talked to, us, talked to us about a concept that had really anchored them in the middle of challenging seasons of ministry. They talked about the importance of, of uh, developing monuments in the wilderness. And it comes from the story of the patriarchs where Abraham and Isaac and Sarah go into this land that God said, I'm leading you here. You don't know how everything is going to work out precisely, but this is the land I'm giving you. I'm doing something with your family to bless the whole world. And every time that God would appear to the people, they would build these altars out of stone and sacrifice there and offering to the Lord. These, these altars, these monuments in the desert, in the middle of the wilderness. And as they went about their lives and they, they walked about the countryside, every now and again they'd come to this old pile of bricks and they would remember, do you remember when God appeared to our grandfather here? This is the place where it happened. Gosh, how powerful. It was a monument in the desert when there were questions about their faith, when they felt like they were journeying with no particular de destination. At the end, they would come across those monuments and remember, we don't have to go to the very beginning. We just have to go back to the last time God revealed himself to us to anchor ourselves in the present. We just need to remember his faithfulness and bank on it and hold on to it fiercely. And similarly in life, most of us go through life through these periods of wilderness. Most of life is not the mountaintop experience of being just like bathing in the revelation of God. Most of it is living in between promise and fulfillment. And we need to call to mind and draw up our own monuments in the desert. 
Maybe even just saying that retroactively, you can look back on your own story, your, your childhood or adolescence, or early marriage, going through uh, difficult seasons, and you remember, gosh, I didn't see it then, but God was intervening in my life. And retroactively, you might make a little monument to mark that season of revelation in the desert. As Emily and I have been married now 13 years, uh, our house is filling up of these little monuments of seasons where God did stuff for us. Even has like, like, like little names to just remind ourselves or we'll hear songs and we'll remember that's when God showed up. That's the season that God showed himself, proved himself faithful. We need these monuments in the desert. We need these memorials of how God came through faithfully because most of life feels like it's wandering through the desert. Much of life feels like the, the grounds for belief are slim or objective cause for hope is elusive. It can be so frustrating when we feel like you've wagered your life on the proposition that there is a God, that it's the Christian God, that Jesus is the one who died to rescue the world, that the Holy Spirit is active. We need these memorials in the desert to remember the story because much of the time, like the questions go out unanswered. We need these memorials in the desert because following Jesus often does the opposite of making life easier. Choosing to be a person who follows Jesus can often make life increasingly more complex and challenging. We have to remember, why am I acting on my belief? So much of the Christian life is in between promise and fulfillment. And it's in this place of tension that I think God wants us to exist. This place of reliance and dependence, living in such a way that divine intervention is necessary. Are you living in a way that like, you're banking on divine intervention at some level in a meta sense or even in your own personal life? Are you trusting God in, in such a way that if He doesn't intervene, the whole plan falls apart? God likes us to be in that messy middle. It's where He shapes us, challenges us, and grows us. I love this uh, old poem or prayer by Pierre de Telhard. He says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. You could just remember that. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. He says, we are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We would like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it's the law of all progress that it's made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. He says, and so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually, like your sense of self in the world, your worldview, your understanding of God. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what he's gradually forming in you. And then remember this line. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. 
Many of us are passing through stages of instability. I think it's more norm than exception. And in the middle of these seasons of instability, I just invite you to give our Lord the benefit of believing that He's working in it and His hand is guiding you. He's gradually shaping something in you and of you that delights Him. And I encourage you as a way of anchoring yourself in the present to go back to your own story looking for those monuments in the desert, looking for just a little bit of perspective to add weight to the notion that God is leading you. Maybe you need to put pictures up in your home or you need to journal. You need to chronicle and capture those moments because we're so prone to forget. To remind yourself of God's faithfulness and then moving into the future, act as if you're confident He's going to catch you. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that His hand is guiding you. You know, it's really difficult to discern in the present tense what God is doing in our lives and how God is making the most of a moment. Sometimes actually the opposite of what we think may be happening is in reality happening. Uh, Go back with me in your memory. Um, I think it was the year 2020. We had this thing called the coronavirus. It really halted life and most most of the world, you know what I'm trying to say. It was really annoying. We had to wear masks and wash our hands a lot and we couldn't talk to our friends. It was was awful. I really hated the early months of quarantine. Uh, What was especially awkward was, you know, for me, preaching to an empty sanctuary on difficult topics too and uh, just like hoping that people were logging on. At the beginning, it was kind of fun. When it was Ben and Noel blowing up my computer speakers, they're literally sitting in front of my, my dinky little computer and everyone's like, the sound is terrible. It was still kind of fun. It was fun watching people log on. It's like, hey, Thatcher's there, Thatcher's watching, and, and that was kind of cute at first. Well, the year before uh, COVID, uh, a couple in our church, Charlie and Cheryl, um, who many of you will know, had, had spent some time in Italy, and Charlie was doing some teaching and study, and Cheryl had been uh, volunteering time with refugees from a Middle Eastern country that's hostile to the gospel. There was war-torn. And Cheryl and Charlie were spending uh, tons of time with these uh, couples from uh, this country and having, beginning to have faith conversations. And um, they kept in touch through WhatsApp or through um, Facebook and things like that. Well, one Sunday morning where, you know, Ben and Noel are leading worship to an empty sanctuary, uh, Charlie and Cheryl see the names of their friends from this Middle Eastern country pop up onto Facebook as being among the viewers. Like, oh my gosh, they're watching from Italy. This is amazing. And over the time, Charlie and Cheryl get to have these, you know, conversations. Meanwhile, I'm preaching sermons like, I'm confident that even my best friends are not listening to this right now. And, uh, and, and you know, it just feels like a, a wasted season. Many of you have your own versions of how difficult that season was. Well, that couple ended up moving to Germany and on, on the Sunday that we started worshiping outside on the lawn, uh, Charlie and Cheryl got word that they had, found, they had helped them find this church in Germany. And they began asking Charlie and Cheryl questions, uh, not only about Christianity in general, but about baptism. And, you know, coming from a Muslim background, the choice to be baptized would be consequential. And they're having these back and forth conversations. And this morning, I got a text from Cheryl and with a bunch of pictures. And she said, I'm crying tears of joy this morning as I watch my friends, this husband and wife, get baptized. 
I'll never forget how incredibly grateful I felt the first time I saw their names pop up as friends who were watching Cornerstone's live stream at the beginning of quarantine. Beautiful story of the church being far more than just a building or local congregation, and yet it's also testimony to the importance of the local church that was the welcoming, tangible representation of Jesus to them on every step of their journey through three different countries. And then he, the the man who was just baptized today, sent this message. He said, I feel happy and reassured because our life is in the hands of the Lord Jesus. It's a special day for us. So we love you, Cheryl. Many greetings for your family and for your church. We never know how consequential our actions will be, big or small. It is the rule. It is like almost always the case that God will use you in ways that you never hear the story and you never hear the fruit. We are terrible judges of how God is working in all things for His good. And He's doing it. And you could tell, you could in looking back on your own story, tell, you know, talk about that man or that woman or that boy or that girl who told, who said that thing that changed your life. And in looking back on your own story, like that person was themselves a monument in the wilderness and they will never know it. A friend of mine tells the story of hearing a kid when he was walking through a season of unbelief pray, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. And that story itself, the innocence of a child talking to God, changed things for him. None of us can guess how God will use our ordinary faithfulness, and we're banking on that together. Some of you are banking on that as you think about uh, core longings that God has placed in your heart that have yet to go fulfilled, hopes that have been elusive. Some of you are pleading with God to call your adult child back into God's family. You've been holding on all your life to raise up a child in the way they, they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. You're still banking on God's faithfulness. And today, in whatever your situation is, I want to just encourage you to remember what he's done in the past. To set up those own monuments in the desert again. To anchor yourself and to build up your hope for his future faithfulness. And all of us, I want to invite and challenge us to live in such a way that works God's divine activity into the equation. Christians must not be fatalists. Christians must not give in to despair because ours is a world that's infused with the hope of resurrection, the eucatastrophe. We're banking on his faithfulness and we can hold on to it in light of his past faithfulness. Let's pray together. As we get ready to receive communion, would you just invite the Holy Spirit to creatively elevate in your mind Moments where God was faithful to you that you've previously not given him credit for. So just now, just in your own heart, just say, Lord, show me parts of my story that I've not given you credit for, for working in my life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir and move and and remind us the innumerable ways in which you've been guiding us toward good, good ends. Help us to rediscover with joy the ways in which your hand has been guiding us and that's been felt and seen in our lives. And I also pray today, Lord Jesus, for that desperate person who needs divine intervention, who needs a hug or the word or or a sense of divine direction, a sense of even just the emotional climate within their heart shifting. 
Pray, Lord Jesus, that you pour out your Spirit on us. Life is difficult. We are easily frustrated and discouraged, and our, our perspective is limited. So would you pour out your Spirit on us and fill us again with faith and courage. You are full of faith. Let us borrow some of yours. Let us borrow some of your confidence in the absence of your anxiety. As we come to receive communion, Jesus, and we come empty-handed, would you fill us again with your Spirit? Fill us with hope, fill us with faith, fill us with memories of your faithfulness to us and help us to continue to move forward, banking on that faithfulness into the future. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.